Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Obviously, Crystal and I are not in the same room. Um, we are <laughs> mandated. That's it. We broke up, guys. It's the end. Yes. It's over. <laughs> yes. We broke up. It's over. We got engaged and then seven minutes later decided, I don't know. I don't <laughs> know about this. This isn't working out. Yeah. This doesn't feel right. So we're trying to keep our distance. We're currently divvying up the assets. Um, she's going to keep the dog. <laughs> Um, I get to keep the it's house. my dog. Uh, right. So you keep the dog. But I'm going to take your house. Um, and <laughs> no, so I get, I mean, I guess we should address the elephant in the room, which is that, um, we are engaged. Yeah. There it is. Right there. Yeah. Look at that. See that? Isn't that pretty? Yeah. That's, I like it. I, I, I think that's very pretty myself, personally. <laughs> yeah. So by the way, thanks to everybody who, uh, you know, we, we tweeted it and then you, uh, you Posted some on Instagram and put it on the gram. Yeah, you know me. I'm not. I don't read comments almost as a matter of principle. I'm not going to say I don't cheat every now and then, take a little peek skis. But you know, uh, you you were perusing them quite heavily, and you know the response was like 99% positive, and that's uh you know that's awesome. I want to thank everybody yeah. for for the positive reaction because I feel like everything. Maybe maybe it's just only in my head at this point, but I feel like everything is so cynical all the time and like. And that's also how I am. Like, sometimes I get really fucking cynical and skeptical and I'll say fucked up shit. And if somebody else were to announce some sort of engagement, I might be like, LOL or some shit. Right. But people responded and it was very kind and and, you know, uh, sweet. And so that, you know, I was very touching. Yeah, I mean, 1% of y'all are real assholes, but everybody else was amazing. <laughs> no. And it is it is also interesting. Like, Instagram was almost very close to 100% positive. Twitter, there was more typical twitter snarkiness etc cetera, etc cetera. but overwhelmingly very sweet very positive and very much appreciated i think the other thing is that like even when you get the overwhelmingly positive response the ones you tend to remember <laughs> like the few negative ones so that yeah. also makes it in your mind like like the balance of it was negative even though it wasn't but in this case it really was overwhelmingly very sweet and we appreciate it guys we're excited my favorite comments are always the ones that like either thought we were already married um or the ones who didn't even know we were together yeah i liked those like ones. where you get the really wild like just Totally oh, different sides of the spectrum. Yeah. yeah. Or people, I, I even saw people who were like, is the, are you trolling us? Like, cause they didn't know that we were even together. And so they didn't know to believe that we were actually engaged. But yes, we are actually engaged. We will get married next year. The plans are in the works. So. And you are all invited. All, all 30,000 of you are invited. <laughs> we're going to do it at like a football stadium. It's gonna be oh fun. my god we're that'd gonna, be a disaster we're gonna get it on tv and everything we're really gonna suck ourselves off hard how's that sound that sounds horrible yeah i agree it sounds love you guys yeah. but no thank you let's just go get eloped <laughs> let's just do that yeah for the the vegas route is not a terrible one to be honest with you yeah no i think you're right it's all the social pressures that move people sort of away from that to force you into the traditional route you know I do feel like people like us, we would be fine with, yeah, let's just do it that way. So, but anyway, uh, enough about us. I think we've talked about us quite a bit. Um, we have Ryan Grimm on the show today and, um, he's, uh, he's a nice dude. I, I enjoy his reporting over there at the intercept. Um, what I like about Ryan, first of all, I just haircut think he's his haircut, extremely intelligent and his haircut. I think his hair is always amazing. Phenomenal. Like that's the first thing you think of when you think of Ryan Grimm. Who gets more hair. shit, me or him, over the haircut? That's a toss-up. 
Definitely him. You really think so? Yes. All right. Yes, okay. definitely him. Okay. The other funny thing about Ryan is he has all these doppelgangers out there who look just like him. Like that dude who's the governor of Mississippi looks oh. weirdly like an older version of him. Oh, <laughs> so, D. He looks so exactly funny. like him. And then he's got his uh, Twitter pick right now is like his profile pick is like some dude in a flight suit who looks exact like you cannot tell it is not Ryan Grimm. So another interesting thing about Ryan. Um, one more thing about Ryan that's cool is he's starting a show with Emily Jashinsky on the Breaking Points channel called Counterpoints that launches this week, which we're very excited about. And we'll talk to him about that a little bit. Um, but, you know, Ryan is someone who is both sort of deeply sourced in D.C. and certainly with the progressive side of D.C. and with left organizations, but also is really connected with independent media. So I've always found him to be this incredibly unique and incredibly important bridge between the kind of like official D.C. left world and the independent media world. Um, I've relied on him for years now because of his reporting. And, you know, I've always found him to be an incredibly essential and thoughtful resource when it comes to understanding how D.C. works and what it means for the left. So very excited to get to talk today to the uh, Washington Bureau Chief of The Intercept and the new host of CounterPoints, Ryan Grimm. Nice to see you, my friends. Nice to see you guys. Thanks for having me here. Friends and new colleague, I might add, with your new show on the Breaking Points channel. Very excited about that. That's right. The empire is growing. (laughs) And striking back or something. I don't know. Not good at Star Wars (laughs) references. Yeah. And weren't they evil? The Empire Strikes Back thing is evil for the Empire. We're evil. They, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's true. The, the rebellion is the rebellion is growing. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's much better. Um, so, Ryan, I wanted to start with just a big picture question for you. Um, when you evaluate the Biden administration thus far, have they done better, worse or about the same as what you expected? I mean, well, compared to what the world needs, obviously, nowhere, nowhere near that. But compared to what I think anybody reasonable could expect, I think they've like wildly exceeded those ex- expectations. I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you think back just to just to that February March period where they come out of the gate, they're like, we want to do a one point nine trillion dollar American rescue plan. And Susan Collins comes back and she's like, great. And a couple weeks, how about, how about 500 billion? How about we do that? Like that's, that's the point where you kind of expected a typical democratic administration to be like, great, let's spend like six months negotiating this thing with Susan Collins, uh, who then walks away. And then you, and then for some reason you still accept all the things that Susan Collins wants and you do something like six, $600 billion uh, while the world is like falling apart beneath your feet. Instead, like a day later, the administration's like, no, like th- that's not a serious offer. Uh, we're we're actually going to move ahead with one point nine trillion. And then they came back a day, you know, Susan Collins and her crew comes back. They're like, how about eight hundred billion? And they're like, no, no, we're going forward with this. And some of that, and you you saw some of that energy coming back again, you know, this summer, um, with the way you know the way that they, you know, pushed through this. They're they're gigantic like semiconductor thing we'll see if that ends up being a giant corporate boondoggle or effort actually creates a, an american semiconductor industry that jury is still out and then just a few days later followed up by pulling together 
this just absolutely, you know, massive relative to anything that has ever been done kind of uh, climate and uh, healthcare package, like de- delivering a, a loss, even, even a small one to pharma has been, you know, off the table in f- for our political system for this long. And to see, you know, 300 plus billion dollars in, in climate investments, which could very well lead to, you know, trillions of dollars getting spent. And that, that's why I was so kind of frustrated at, at, their failure to get anything done on climate because there's so much money on the sidelines that wants to start investing in like clean tech and, and, you know, different climate technology, like to, to make solar panels and windmills more efficient and, and on and on and on. And, but it, it's competing against a heavily subsidized fossil fuel incumbent. And it, so it needed a kickstart. And so finally it got its kickstart. So even if Republicans come in, uh, and take power and hold it for the next 20 years or for the rest of our lives or whatever, at least there's like a fair fight now uh, for clean energy. All, all of it might be too late. You know, we might have, you know, o- overshot what's what's possible, but at least like it's a ball game at this point. So I was pretty startled, uh, startled to see that he actually withdrew from Afghanistan. Um, I think what he's doing to Afghanistan now is a crime against humanity. So, you know, with Democrats, it, they, you know, they, they, you know, they, they, they hand you something with one hand and then knock your teeth out with the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you're used to getting punched in the face with both fists, then I guess that's progress. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was expecting uh, there, there came a point where I expected absolutely nothing from this White House when mm-hmm. Biden bottomed out at a 33 percent approval rating. And it almost looked like he was actively trying to lose and the Democrats were actively trying to tank the midterms. I was astonished at how terrible they were and how they couldn't even get like optical messaging victories, never mind substantive ones. But then, you know, I blinked and all of a sudden I think anybody who's being objective and analyzing it would say there was a string of legislative victories. I mean, the the first thing, of course, was the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which they had nothing to do with. Um, and that just de facto led to a surge in support on the Democratic side. But then, you know, I would argue they took the ball and ran with it in a way that was well above and beyond what I expected, because, you know, you got the PACT Act, which, of course, was the health care for um, veterans who were victims of the toxic burn pits. Mm-hmm. And you got you got all these different little pieces of legislation. Um, the IRA, of course, has the 15 percent corporate tax rate. The, but the student loan debt elimination thing, too, to me, mm-hmm. you know, I thought. First of all, I thought nothing, but then if he does anything, it's going to be the $10,000 for $125,000 or under. And um, that we got more than that. I mean, we got the 20K mm-hmm. for the Pell Grant recipients. We got uh, the, the cap at 5% of your monthly income, which again, anybody who I think is being fair and nuanced will say, shit, I wasn't expecting that. So my question is, what? let's say hypothetically, because of all the things I just described, the Democrats... Uh, not only hold on, but actually pick up a little bit. Let's say that. Let's say they hold the House and they pick up a couple of seats in the Senate. What do you think is next on the agenda? Because now I'm starting to think, hey, maybe some sort of paid leave bill. Maybe they resurrect the universal pre-K thing. Maybe they do the extended child tax credit, find a way to get that done. What do you think? Yes. And and total, let's be totally clear, like it's still massive uphill climb. Like, that is, folks here in Washington are still talking about Republicans very likely taking over the House. Have to be a miracle. However, you're right. Like it's 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 well within it's it's well within reach. So it, it's it's not a fantasy to talk about. And you know a, a, a couple things. 
you know, one, I think immediately, let's say they let's say they hold the House and then let's say they pick up one Senate seat so that they have they have 51 at that point. They then have enough uh, to to codify Roe v. Wade, which I think that they just have to do like they cannot get around not doing it. Now, Kirsten Cinema technically has said, like, I don't support undoing the filibuster uh, in order to you know codify Roe v. Wade because. It, that's bad for abortion rights because in the future, some Republicans with a 50-vote majority could roll back abortion rights. But I just don't think, it, certainly in an election year where she's going to be facing a primary challenge, that you can hold a position that, that that's that absurd. Like, you're not going to do anything about the filibuster because Republicans might in the future, hypothetically, theoretically, do something bad about abortion in a world where abortion is already banned for like mi- millions and millions of people across the country. Like, you, I just I just find that so hard to believe. I think at 52, they they certainly have because everybody from Fetterman uh, to Mandela Barnes um, in you know in Wisconsin has said like I will you know I'm uh, you know I will re- reform the filibuster so you can do so you can codify Roe v. Wade. What exactly codifying Roe v. Wade looks like would have to be fought out, but I feel like they they have to do it. Like they they really ha- like you really have to do that, and that becomes. Then, a, you know, a federal law that legalizes abortion nationally. And Alito, in his opinion, now they're, they're not held back by hypocrisy or inconsistency, but this is a really recent opinion. In Dobbs, he says the Constitution is silent on abortion rights. And he says specifically that it doesn't give a right to abortion and it doesn't ban abortion. So it would be very difficult for a leader to come in like immediately after co- after Congress codified Roe v. Wade and say, okay, well, actually, uh, the Constitution says you, that abortion's banned nationwide. So then I think it, if they can do that, then it becomes like, and this, and this actually, I think, interestingly cuts both ways. It becomes then an actual election issue in a real way because it was an election issue for Republicans for a generation, right? Where they're saying elect an, elect the judges and the judges will ban abortion, and you know, forty years later they made good on their promise. But Democrats weren't making it an election issue at all. Now Republicans would have to run and say, uh, "We're going to overturn Ro- Roe v. Wade legislatively yeah. if you give us congressional majorities," or or it's going to you know it'll tear them apart. So that cuts both ways because then it also gives Democrats you know, for, for the next couple of decades, something to run on. That's not, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to fight a big tech. We're going to, we're going to raise the minimum wage. We're going to expand healthcare. We're going to take care of uh, workers. Um, so you know, you can see that cutting both ways, but I think for, there's a reason that Republicans never ran in swing districts saying that they were going to ban abortion. Like they always did the fake, you know, they always lied about it until they finally did it. You know, we, we kind of knew what they were going to do, but they didn't. They didn't want their swing state and swing district people running on it. So I think they. I think they've got to do that. They got to do something on housing too. Like the the country's falling apart, um, and you know it's it's just getting completely ripped to pieces. And there was uh, a book around here somewhere about uh, inflation. I want to. I want to about about the the about the way that inflation causes unrest around the world and. It cites this really mm. interesting study that that in like in third world countries, uh, when bread prices 
skyrocket. That's when you see people pour into the streets, and that's when you see the kind of fabric of society get ripped yep. apart. In first world countries, or uh, it's it's housing prices that, and if you look at Brexit, if you hmm. look at Trump, like if you look at all these phenomena around the, the around the, the developed countries where that have seen their countries get ripped apart, it's it's it has very consistently kind of lined up with pl- places and in particular areas where housing has gotten out of control because there's something there's something about housing that is it's the it's the social con- it represents the social contract just the way bread does in a place like Tunisia housing represents the social contract here in America and if that's being torn up then then people's are like all right well if there's no social contract anymore yeah f you like it's done well you could probably point to um Political shifts among millennials and Gen Z uh, mm-hmm. with regards to housing, too, because, I mean, overwhelmingly, millennials are, you know, unable to purchase a house. Those milestones are pushed back in terms of when they can actually achieve that. If you don't come for money and don't have mommy and daddy who can, like, pony up your down payment for you, you may be locked out of that housing market forever. So we actually covered a story. I wish I could remember the numbers off the top of my head. But, you know, we talk we actually talk about the housing market quite a bit on breaking points um, because, you know, it seems to be of great interest to our audience and certainly of great interest to us. There's a huge majority of millennials who are cheering for a housing crisis because they want the Mm -hmm. prices to drop so that they have some shot Mm -hmm. in hell of getting housing. Now, the problem is that if it was the Fed that, you know, that would be the most likely culprit to spark that crisis, what they are doing by hiking rates also makes it so that you are uh, you are dampening supply of housing as well. So there's less homes being built. So it's not like the prices right. would fall in a way that would be beneficial to people. So it's obviously something that has to be tackled right. legislatively. What are some of the smart proposals that people on the Hill are talking about that could, um, you know, that that might work? Is there any bipartisan support on this front? And the book, by the way, I looked at it, it's called Price Wars by this guy, Rupert Russell. Um, it's it's excellent. I'd recommend it to anybody. Um, but yes, so I, I totally understand that impulse that you like you and, and because there's this massive unfairness to it as well, that it's just a lottery. Like if you graduated college uh, and get, got into a job market at a certain point. Uh, and you were able to get a house before it's like musical chairs, but like before the music stopped. Uh, then you're in good shape. If if you came in after after the music stopped, you're like, I didn't even lose this game. I I was never here while the music was even playing. I just showed up, and there's there's no chairs left. So of course you want to then you know throw throw the chairs everywhere. But I'd for, I, but I'd remind people that we had a housing crisis 2007 2008, and that did not actually work out for young people at that point. Yes, housing prices collapsed from their obscene numbers um, that they were at in the middle of that decade. And we're low for the next, you know, six, seven, eight years. But the economy also was smashed, and so all of these people who had, who who were kind of graduating into this economy in two thousand eight, nine, ten, eleven, just had just years taken off their their professional lives, and and contributed to the exact thing that you're talking about. So you're right; you've you've got to do it legislatively. There was there was a massive housing title in Build Back Better. Um, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars um, around basically, uh, you know, uh, investing in affordable housing and 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 pushing policy that makes it easier to to build dense construction like th- those. Those are basically the the things you need. You need more money going into it. And you need you need an easier ability to build 
lot, a lot more housing because, you know, as the population's uh, growing and as more and more people are moving from, you know, you, you see, you see it in the census numbers, the r- rural populations are declining. Those people are coming into the cities. Uh, there's, and there's f- f- the same or fewer places to live. And so even without, um, BlackRock buying everything up, you're going to see just the basics of supply and demand pushing uh, pushing prices up. But I also think the problem, you got just pass a law and say BlackRock, like you can't, yeah. you can't buy, you can't own more than like two homes, like whatever. You can't own, you can't own twenty. There's got to be some investment. There's got to be something you can do about like houses should be for housing people, <laughs> you know, right. and, and first you, and foremost. And, say, and so, and right, they get a but they get a benefit, which is crazy, like. If you're a homeowner, you can write off your mortgage interest, um, but you can't write off your actual mortgage off, off of your taxes. But if you're BlackRock, then you can throw that into your um, kind of business expenses. And so mm. we're like we're like massively wow. subsidizing. That's disgusting. Um, I mean, not, like if that that's not precise, and some tax accountant's going to like flag that as as slightly wrong. There are gigantic tax advantages that are given to private equity when they come in against a homeowner. So not only do they have more money, well, and here's the other helping them. So I think we can all see very clearly how it would be politically difficult to crack down on black rock and these Mm -hmm. other private equity, um, you know, ghouls coming in and buying up entire neighborhoods, but there's also very powerful interest in keeping housing prices going up and up and up forever and not, increasing the housing supply. I mean, you see this play out like neighborhood by neighborhood where, yes, people in the abstract like the idea of affordable housing, but not in their neck of the woods, not in their neighborhood, Mm -hmm. not in their backyard, right? So one of the most significant dividing lines, I think, in American society right now is um, people who own assets, and most Americans, the asset they own is their house, and people who don't. I mean, their interests in a lot of ways are at odds with each other, and the group that already are homeowners um, tend to be more rooted. They tend to be older. They tend to be wealthier, and they tend to be more politically powerful. And they vote more, right? Right. There and now they're Ryan in both parties because Democrats represent a lot of these suburban neighborhoods. Yeah, go ahead, Kyle. Um, what do you make of? the Fed effectively inducing a recession by raising interest rates. I covered a story uh, of Elizabeth Warren was on one of the Sunday shows, and it was the return of based Elizabeth Warren, dare I say, <laughs> uh, where she listed all the the reasons why inflation is not necessarily all tied to big spending. It has a lot to do with the supply chain, has a lot to do with monopolies and, and corporate price gouging, uh, etc. And so her argument is like, look, because because that's the reality. Um, will it impact inflation in a positive way if you raise interest rates? Perhaps, but that's you're not really getting at the core of what caused the inflation in the first place. And also, you know, a little bit of pain being spread around means X number of millions of people being <laughs> jobless. So what do you make of what the Fed is doing here? And what can be done other than just inducing a recession to try to get inflation under control? Yeah, I mean, it seemed to it seemed to make no no sense because for the reasons that you're talking about like if if you have if you have prices going up because you have a a, a labor shortage that's connected to a, a pandemic and and also to uh, you know multi multiple years of immigration being being way down uh, if you have it connected to supply chains uh, that have been busted plus an imbalanced economy like for 
and if, if people if people want to do their patriotic duty to like fight inflation, the way to actually do it is to go to bars and restaurants and stop spending so much money on like Amazon. Like that's like that's what like that, that's the like version of when George Bush after 9-11 was like, go to Disneyland, go fly our friendly skies, like go spend to show that our economy is working. The, the problem that we've had is this this people people had a little bit of extra money um, from uh, staying in and also from, uh, you know, from the CARES Act, from the $600 um, extra unemployment checks, from then the, the, the 600 to 1400 all those all those checks that came in. Savings accounts went way up. People were spending more money than they had before, but they were spending it all at basically Amazon or, or on goods, like as economists call it, on goods rather than on services. And so people need to just get back out, like, um, and start spending on ser- or services or just stop buying so much crap. Um, that, that if you balance that out, like that actually does a lot when people mocked the data that came out in July that said that there was 0% inflation. Um, but it's like, look, no, that that's real. And I think that's why you're seeing people tell pollsters they're much less concerned about inflation because once it stops, like it's, 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 it's very, it's nerve wracking, you know, to see it constantly going up. Whether it's whether it's gas prices or other prices that you just keep seeing them go up. So even if prices are higher than people want them to be, which of course they are, like the fact that they're not going up anymore, or they're starting to come down, or they're or they're only going up a smaller amount. I think psychically is feels a lot better for people, and I think the Fed hopefully will notice that, and and hopefully there's a lot of pressure being put on them uh, inter- internally. And you know, Ken Klippenstein had a good piece for us where he flagged. This uh, this study done by the Fed's own economists saying like you're gonna throw the country into a recession, and you can even say, hey Fed, all right, you wanted to slow inflation down, all right, inflation is slowed down, like relax, like enough. What, what does yeah. that say? What does what does that say about the system though? Sorry to cut you off, Crystal. What does that say about the system that like your options are <laughs> runaway inflation whereby we're all screwed or? Yeah, let's just massively increase unemployment where millions of people lose their job and only maybe 10 percent of the country will be screwed. But the rest of us will have some price stability. I mean, that that almost speaks to a sort of catastrophic flaw at the core of capitalism. That's like, yeah, maybe we could try something totally different and better. Yes. And this catastrophic flaw to me is the way that they the, the Fed and the market looks at looks at wage what they call wage inflation what other people call a raise <laughs> like that 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 for, <laughs> you know, that for that for decades uh was the the thing that wall street and the fed would look at and say how's wage inflation how's wage inflation oh 0.2 percent oh all right we're in we're in good shape and then wage inflation goes up to a little bit higher and it's like oh got to slam the brakes on the economy uh we got to throw people out of work so that because they they're they're using this kind of you know if you're going to give them the most benefit of the doubt it would be that after World War II when you had the grand bargain between big labor and these big corporations they all had these contracts in place that represented like half or more of of the of the actual working people in the country that said whatever the inflation index is for this year we get that uh, that raise plus you know five percent every year. And it created this spiral in the 70s that, you know, so you'd have you'd have 10 percent inflation. So then the union would get 15 percent raise. And then uh, then you'd have 15 percent inflation because half the country was getting a 15 percent raise. And then you'd have 
the next year you'd get a 22%. You know, so it's it's spiraled up. If you're going to be the kindest that you possibly could to them, they're thinking about that. But you're still not being very kind because unions have been destroyed. There is no link anymore. Like there are these contracts basically don't exist anymore because of 40 years of neoliberalism just just driving private sector union density down to what, five, six percent at this point. So now when they look at wage, wage, wage inflation, as they call it, and just decide to destroy the economy because wages are going up, they're just doing it uh, ideologically because they just don't like workers and they want to keep and they want to keep wages flat. And then we're like, wow, it's so strange that like wages have been flat for 40 years. That's a real shame. Why can't, you know, why, why, why is, why is that the case? And then as soon as wages rise, they're like, oh, we need to tamp those down. But eventually yeah, they get wages right. up, but not if they start going up. Cause if they start going up, then we have to push them back down. But we do want them to go up, just not now or like ever. Yeah. These are so the that, same type yeah. of people who talk about the tight labor market. Like it's a bad thing. Right. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. See that as like a disaster. Yes. We have to yes. deal with and, this tight labor market. It's like that right. means people have jobs and workers have a little bit of bargaining power. So they're able to, you know, unionize and have strikes like we've seen. Yep. And it does. And it 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 cause it, it it becomes a solution to so many different social uh, problems as as well, which the bosses don't like either. Like if you are getting discriminated against uh, work, uh, discriminated against at work, if you're getting sexually harassed at work and the labor market is tight. Your boss has much less power over you. Uh, you, you Very can, true. Uh, it, and you can just you can just kind of feel it. You're like I'm out of here, and your boss knows that too, so they're less likely to do it. And what they call that in, is a militant workforce, and which is you know that's the thing you know people standing up for their <laughs> for their basic rights. And so that's the other thing you're seeing a lot of corporations talk about is that they want to like tamp down on the militancy in their, in their workforces. And you, you see it in the white collar side too. They think that if they can drive the unemployment rate up a couple points, then they can uh, force people to give up their, this whole work from home thing that they've started to like. And so that yeah. they're then. Yeah. It is so. a very interesting time. I mean, you have um, the work from home, you know, among the white collar workers, you have actual unionization happening in the fast food industry, which has basically never been seen before. Mm -hmm. You have increasing numbers, especially of Zoomers and millennials who were like, you know what, this whole like grind set hustle culture thing, like, fuck that. I'm going to do the bare yeah. minimum. <laughs> like, yeah. I just am not going to I'm going to think about the rest of my life and not approach my life as if I am my job. And that's that. It really is kind of a revolutionary moment in terms of how broad swaths of the American public from the service sector to blue collar workers to white collar workers are thinking about work. And, you know, for so long, like the way that people are disciplined is both through shame, you know, shame and cultural coercion that you are your job and that if you're not working hard, like you don't deserve a good life. And if you're failing, it must be because you're not working hard enough. Those things are at the core, the bedrock of American mythology. I think it's kind of hard to really wrap your head around how much things could change just from that shift in approach that's been buoyed and bolstered by the fact that yes, you do have a tight labor market. Right. And, and I think it, that, that it happens uh, and is happening right around the same time that people were so horribly treated, you know, by their employers during the pandemic that it's like, okay, so, uh, you, you now you need me because you need workers It's a tight labor market. And you also showed me that you have no respect for me and you hate me. Uh, so like, 
So, yeah. so it's time for us to like take matters into our own hands, either like, you know, individually, like you said, like thinking about like, how, how am I going to make this job work best for me? Um, or collectively, like so many people just, you know, forming into unions and, you know, big labor has spent millions of dollars over the last 40 years trying to, trying to, uh, organize different workplaces with very, very little success. Um, and, you know, and, and you, you, you saw the distinction between, you know, Alabama run by, you know, the Amazon union campaign down there, run, you know, run by big labor with millions of dollars spent compared to Staten Island. Um, people are just fed up and they're also, you know, they're, they're they have a, a fluency and a literacy with kind of social justice and what a union means that didn't really exist before there, there's and i think the kind of the bernie sanders campaign and that whole kind of raising of consciousness probably con- contributed to that oh there's no doubt about people it are like yeah people are like oh yeah i mean the starbucks some of the leading starbucks organizers came directly out of you know their first mm-hmm. volunteer efforts were like for the ba- burning campaign and so absolutely having labor rights as a central part of the political discourse of you know since 2016 that has definitely contributed to um these labor movements ryan you um you wrote a great article a while back that i covered on my show uh it was i'll just give the gist of it and then i'll let you speak more to the specifics but it was basically about how um you have these left-wing groups in washington dc that are nominally ideological and focused on specific issues like abortion rights for example and how they've basically been tearing themselves to shreds over internal disagreements based around identity and based around, you know, oh, you know, you're not being pure enough or you said the wrong thing. And, you know, then all of a sudden, even during like the fight of a lifetime vis-a-vis reproductive rights, they were nowhere to be found. These groups that are about reproductive rights. So give everybody some of the specifics of that story and, uh, you know why you wrote that story basically. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and it's not unique necessarily to these kind of progressive advocacy groups in, in Washington. I think you've, you've, you've seen it at a lot of different organizations and even companies around the country, but it's, it's a, it's a, let's see. I mean, where do you, where do you want to start with it? It's like, um, you started seeing it, you started seeing it bubble up um, in. Uh, so, I, so here, actually, here let me let me let me start it here because this is this theory I'll try out on you too. Um, like 2009, 2010, uh, Democrats still have uh, legislative majorities. Uh, they're pu- they're doing Obamacare. They're pushing for the public option, you know, which which falls apart. They're doing Wall Street reform, the CFPB. Um, this is off the back. This is, you know, in the midst of the financial crisis, off the back of the Obama campaign, that's with, that is kind of like galvanized this entire generation that they're going to like really kind of change and make the country a better place. They they get wiped out in the Tea Party wave in the midterms of of 2010, and like instantly, um, all of the kind of energy that was go was was kind of organizing behind that to try to push for material improvement to people's lives is shut off because Paul Ryan and John Bain or all those people are not, they're not doing, they're not doing anything for you. And so the first thing that you, 
that you see coming out of there is is Occupy. And Occupy, you know, famously kind of has a lot of Bernie Sanders themes to it, Nine, the 99% against the 1%, all about all about income inequality. Um, and it, it spreads around the country. And it, and it really seeds, I think, um, the, the kind of energy that then later blossoms into the, the Sanders campaign. But at, this, at the same time that this is happening, you're starting to see the the kind of rise of, uh, of of social media. You know, you had Facebook and Twitter started earlier, but by by around this time, like there's the the take up is is so kind of uh, you know is so, so kind of widespread that you're seeing it change the way that you know just media is getting around. Like when I started and uh, when I was at the Huffington Post in the early years of say twenty. 2009 2010 we were still like really s- sending our stories around by email first like to to hmm. get them out to people and then blogs um it was only a couple years later that, that twitter really starts starts taking over and so that that allows people to kind of bypass national media it starts a you know national cultural conversation you had the year of the woman uh, what was that 2011 or something um, and then you start to see the, the rise of, uh, of Black Lives Matter 2013 with Tray- Trayvon, Trayvon Martin, uh, because now people can, um, you know, can capture on their phones and they can upload. And, and it wasn't that it wasn't that it was it was new, but like now now it was right in front of your face. Now you could now you could see it. And then you start to make real cultural gains too. you know, 20, 2015. People forget how recent it was. 2015 is when marriage equality um, was legalized by mm, right. the Supreme court. Donald Trump launched his campaign same week, basically as, as, uh, marriage equality was, was legalized, wow. which is a bizarre thing to kind of, to kind of think about. And so you're seeing all these gains being made. And then you see Bernie Sanders start to take off and Hillary Clinton decides very consciously and her, and her people decide that they are going to kind of uh they're going to take him down by showing that they're actually the most left-wing folks because they're going to kind of out outwoke him like that's that's when it first becomes cynically deployed and she gives this crazy speech in in february that becomes kind of her mantra where she february in nevada ahead of the nevada caucuses after bernie's like doing surprisingly well she's like if you break up the banks, is that going to end racism? If you break up the banks, is that going to end sexism? If you break up the banks, is that going to end Islamophobia? You're like, uh, <laughs> what? And you're you're just left kind of sputtering and confused. And you and like you could do some academic treatise that talks about redlining and be like, well, actually, like the banking system has been like kind of fundamental in in sowing a lot of uh, a lot of this. And so that if you rolled that back, sure, actually, it wouldn't end racism, but you could actually start, you make some progress on that, in that field. Instead, you're like, what, what on earth is happening here? And then you, you take that and you layer on top of it, the Bernie bro thing that, so he's, he is, you know, being accused of racism and sexism and all these other th- uh, things, um, because his kind of material agenda is not focused on racism and therefore breaking up the banks doesn't racism. You, you layer on top of that. Like he, all, all he has is a bunch of like rich white kids who are like going to be mean to you on the internet. Um, it, it, it creates this, uh, this, this then Olympics where over the next couple of years, this, this kind of Sanders wing of the party is like, we're not going to, we're not going to get beaten um, on that front. You know, we're, we're never going to be, 
you know, outwoked by cynical centrists, we're going to make sure that uh, that the messengers that we have are going to be able to carry the message because, you know, Bernie was never going to be the guy who's like going to be able to parry all of those all those blows. And so it, it you, you start to see this energy whip through progressive institutions. And I think it whipped through so quickly because it was at adv- it was kind of advantageous to every different group to allow it to to you mm. know so it's like it, you know just because it's advantageous to a particular faction within within inside an organization um doesn't mean that it's going to spread throughout all of the different organizations it also has to be useful um to say the leaders of the organization and until of course it's not and you know, in french revolution style it, it just you know ends up eating everybody up along the way but you can you could see how it 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 becomes non-threatening just the way that the way that hillary clinton was fine with all of that stuff because it doesn't it's not going to do anything to goldman sachs for her to like talk in uh, and adopt all of different uh lingo that like people from oberlin are using at the time or whatever like that's not actually threatening to anybody's anybody in the one percent's like material class interests and so they're like okay fine yeah like like let's do that because if it if it moves the energy kind of in a different direction um away from where it was heading then then okay fine let's let's do that and then uh you you in every organization you're gonna have in people jockeying uh over turf like what i don't know what the first organization ever created in the world history was but i'm sure like by week three people were jockeying for Who's going to be like the number two? Who's going to be the number one? And if you give people a weapon that makes kind of debate no longer possible, then you can flip the script on people. Um, you can you can kind of reverse rank in in a way because you if if you make if you make an accusation which is uh, you know if you respond to it then you're being insensitive or if you um, if you engage with it then now you're at, at the level like. It, it's it's a very it's a very useful way of engaging in internal politics, and so it just well, and not of, only that, you know, but if you some would say if you're not of the particular identity group, you're not even allowed to weigh in on it at all. Like <laughs> you can't have you can't even be involved in the conversation. Are, right, right. Like, who do you think you are, kind of thing. Right, and, and, and just to be clear, yeah. this is destroying, like objectively so, and this is what you detailed in your article. It has effectively destroyed various left-wing policy-focused groups and think tanks in Washington D.C. I mean, they, they might come back, but they, yeah, right. They they stopped doing things because, or they stopped doing the things that their mission was set up to do. Um, the, like one, this one climate organization, for instance, um, a, a source of mine. They said they reached out to them. Uh, during like the height of Build Back Better for like some help with this one particular climate uh, piece that they were working on, this group was really good at. And they got back, uh, hey, we're taking an eight week break uh, to do internal work. It's like eight weeks. Jesus. <laughs> and yeah. so the internal work, you you set up a set up a giant meeting or a retreat where people will hear each other out from the last thing that people are upset about, and and almost every time in that retreat or in that meeting or on that call or on that zoom, somebody says something that then triggers another round of it. So then oh you have to have God. more Then you have to have another, then you have to not have another one. You have to schedule the other one. You have to organize the other one. You have to kind of get everybody. This back is together. literally my idea of hell. Yeah. And, and it's, 
And the next thing you know, a year has gone by. Yeah. And by the way, this is something, you know, I have firsthand experience with this working, you know, co-founding Justice Democrats because Jank Uger, another one of the co-founders, uh, you had these uh, right wing media outlets dig up his old blog posts that he had deleted a long time ago where, you know, he was thinking he was like right. an edgy he was Howard because like, he was like Howard a Stern type dude. troll kind of guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. At the time, he was trying to be kind of like Howard Stern. And he right. had written something along the lines of like the genes of women are flawed because they don't want to have sex with me too uh, enough. <laughs> and, you know, it was tongue in cheek. And obviously, and there were gonna, I'm sure there were things in there that I would substantively disagree with. But the idea that you take blog posts that were literally written in like the 1990s and then turn around and try to axe this guy out of the organization, it literally tore apart Justice Democrats from the inside because the staff revolted and said, literally, us or, or Jank. And Jank decided to put his ego aside and step aside to save the organization, Justice Democrats. And thankfully, you know, we were able to get Ilhan Omar in there and and uh, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and, and Rokhan and a whole bunch of Rokhan was already in there. He was an incumbent. But you get the point. There were, you know, he mm -hmm. was able to step aside, put his ego aside and step aside. But this is something that I have very firsthand experience with. And uh, I'm curious what you think of my theory on this, because I think the problem is twofold here. One of them is a top down problem. So. The corporate Democrats are so beholden to big money that they can only go so far left on economic issues. So what they do is they try to outflank the left on social issues. So they start sounding very left on social issues and embrace sort of, you know, this ethos of anti-racism and and rhetoric like that. And then the other problem is from the bottom up, I think you have an academia problem where the old school idea of colorblindness, which we all used to sort of casually accept colorblindness and egalitarianism, that that sort of evolved and became like anti-racism and sectarianism, where some people say, you know, well, right wingers have pointed this out where they say it's kind of like the oppression Olympics, where it's like, hey, who's more oppressed, me or you? And then you fight about that all day as opposed to addressing things, you know, universally, where you implement universal policies that help everybody. What do you think of that analysis? Do you think that that is effectively what's fueling this or is it social media or what? I, th I think the, the first part is right that that, yes, like cor corporations, it, you know, when a corporation is that eager to adopt something, uh, then from a left perspective, you've got to wonder why. Like if 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 within like six months, you can get everyone from Lockheed Martin to Colgate uh, you know, to say like that they're on board for this, whatever mission it is, like then, then your mission was absolutely not threatening to anybody in power. Um, so I think you're, I think you're, you're right about that. And so that's where it gets its fuel. Um, and I think in if there, yeah, there's some, there's something about, um, the, the collapse of people's kind of belief in a collective way forward that kind of came after after you know the bernie campaign fails the first time you know cobbles back together collapses again because you really see the the upsurge in a lot of this stuff happen when the more that people lose faith then they kind of turn inward and they're like if, okay i can't make you know i if i can't make the world a better place then at least i can you know find something very you know close to me where i can make some make some change and yeah. so they go hunting them. Well, didn't, for didn't we see the same? Can... Didn't we see the same dynamic play on in the seventies? Basically, mm -hmm. after like you know the end yeah. of the hopeful sixties, and you have groups that 
it's the same sort of deal. They're tearing themselves apart. They're having these purity tests. They become more inward focused as you have, you know, Nixon coming into office and this kind of like, you know, law and order authoritarian right wing reactionary politics that's very ascendant. Do you see parallels with that era? Definitely. Because, you know, after 68, when 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 Nixon comes in, you 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 know, six, 68 globally is really like this this massive explosion of of activism and, and energy whether you know, France almost saw another French revolution uh, and then in, in you know in, in the US everybody knows like how passionate and, and how much energy there was in, in the 60s and particularly in 68 and then it ends with Nixon becoming president and you just see that all just fizzle um, and and you start seeing this like um, back to the land thing where a lot of like uh, hippies like just go join communes and just completely uh, drop out. And then in the feminist movement, uh, you see you see it turn into this like absolutely uh, you know uh, vicious ripping apart of of people. They they called it trashing at the time. Like that was the that was the word for cancellation or whatever. Um, and it and it became the thing that just that that the left in general was was just obsessed with was like root, like rooting out kind of impurity within its own ranks or and and the 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 like closer to home you, you can uh make your criticisms the more likely they are that somebody's going to care like the the feminist movement at the time or the at, uh, students for a democratic society weatherman whoever like they could say whatever they want about richard nixon he doesn't care he's trying to put them all in prison but if you say something about your your comrade that comrade's going to care. And so a lot of it, I think, is about people just trying to find audiences that will listen. Like, because hmm. like, and it's the same, it's the same reason that I've spent my career criticizing Democrats rather than sp- focusing more on Democrats than on Republicans. Because if I say something about Republicans, they're like, okay, whatever, who cares? Like, <laughs> yeah, but if, I know I, but if I say something about Democrats, it's like, oh, okay, like this is coming. This is coming from um, a a, pl- a good faith perspective from somebody who like has generally you know progressive ideas. So like, we're, like they're going to listen. Yeah, I do feel like solidarity is is kind of a lost art in many respects because the the factionalization and the infighting and and the purity testing among your own ranks is it's just so common now and it's it's like that is the norm so i almost feel like the edgy outsider thing to do is to try to give you know give an olive branch and and interpret mm-hmm. things in the most you know positive light possible don't steal don't straw man people steal man people and and try to build solidarity and that's something that i feel like it's a uh, you know, you're you're fighting an uphill battle if you go down that path. It feels like you're you're kind of lonely if you take that path. And to your point, I'm not saying that like democratic politicians <laughs> deserve solidarity, but what I am saying is people who are broadly part of a movement with 70%, 80% similar goals, it's like if you can't if you can't get that person in your tent, you are literally never going to win yeah. anything ever. Yeah. And Do you there think though there's a case okay. to be made that we're that we've kind of turned a corner or that we could turn a corner on this. I'm thinking of two things in particular. I mean, you're sort of arguing, which I, I believe, I, I think you make a persuasive case that a lot of this stems from this feeling of helplessness, this feeling of powerlessness, the sense that like, okay, well, this is the area that at least I have some control over. Like these people in DC and elected office aren't doing shit for me. And they're certainly not doing shit for me on the material front. 
least I can get them to like use some of the rhetoric that I want and then kneecap this colleague that I hate or whatever. <laughs> so it stems from hopelessness. So on the one hand, you do have some things that are happening to all of our surprise in DC that are actually positive and benefit people's material condition. So that's number one. And number two, I mean, you have some of the most stunning displays of solidarity bubbling in the labor movement that I've seen in my entire lifetime, um, mostly among young Gen Z, a lot of, you know, woke folks over at Starbucks, et cetera, who are in real time demonstrating what solidarity looks like, what it means and what it can ultimately accomplish. So do you think there's a possibility that we are sort of turning a corner on this chapter? Yes, because I think that whenever you have panics like this throughout throughout history, like they don't last forever. And that's the that's the mistake that people make is thinking that the current condition is going to be with us absolutely forever. They But they do ebb and flow. So I think you're right. Um, and I think that particularly union organizing, I think canvassing um, is 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 central to this, too. But like particularly organizing a union with people um, forces you into solidarity. Like so I, I, I completely agree with, with Kyle that solidarity is a lost lost art and that um, that we need that. It, it is it is to me the one of the most important, if not the most important values uh, to hold because it is so difficult to hold because it means showing solidarity, not in the best of times, but in, in the worst of in the worst of times. And if you're going to pull together 40, 100, 1500 if, at a warehouse human beings into uh into a union together, into a collective, you might be perfect. You might have everything right, but you're going to. You're going to be, you know, in now solidarity and in a legal solidarity, like with imperfect people. And you're going to realize that you're going to have to be forgiving of each other um, if if you're going to, um, you know, if, if you're going to succeed in your collective mission. And if people start to see collective successes, I think then then, yeah, I think that's um, that I think that would help uh, turn turn a corner. You know, I do think one of the other things that might lead to an increase in solidarity, as you guys are talking about, and how maybe we did turn a corner uh, in one sense, is you are seeing now Democrats doing the bare minimum, which is a lot more than what we normally expect. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, in my estimation, I do think that elected Republicans led by Trump have gotten more extreme than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm including the Bush and Cheney years. Where I think I think you know I think there's a good argument George W. Bush was an even worse president than Donald Trump, or that it's a tie, right? But all of mm-hmm. Trump's rhetoric post being president, I think I don't think it's even a little stretch to call it fascist. I think when he goes on Truth Social every other day and says just reinstate me as president or or redo the election, and you now you have um, a majority of Americans have at least one person on the ballot who flat out denies the legitimacy of the 2020 election, when you're faced with effectively an opposition that is not even really hiding the fact that they might just throw out the results of a democratic election because they don't agree with that democratic election. I do think that makes it a lot easier to look at somebody who you might have 30% disagreement with and say, you know what, buddy, we're in this together. We'll we'll see how it holds up if Republicans take power again, um, because then yeah, no, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think you're right. There, the, there is like, it's, it's getting wild. Um, the way that, 
and Crystal, you talk about this a lot, the way that the di- different media ecosystems are creating basically like two different tribes, two different camps of, of people who don't even, don't even see each other anymore. Like someone made an interesting point that, you know, you, that it's not as if um, there's some cognitive dissonance within some of these uh, like Republican voters who believe the election was stolen. There's no dissonance because they're not even hearing the side that says the other thing. Like they're just getting the one message. And, and uh, on the democratic side, there's, there, there is, uh, you know, if, if all you, if all you do is watch MSNBC, um, you have no idea. Like you wouldn't, you would have, like, if you had to try to sit down and talk politics, like with somebody who just watches Newsmax, it would be just utterly wild. Like that you would have nothing (laughs) in common to talk about. Like the Newsmax people are like, what about the big guy? What about 10% for the big guy? And the, the Democrat would be like, what, what are you talking about? Literally, what are you talking like, about? Literally, yeah. what are you talking about? Who's the big guy? What's the 10%? Um, and I'm sure you know, I, like- I see this. Yeah. I do see this a lot, you know, just co-hosting with Sagar because, and I'm sure you have the same experience with Emily where even just because our like social media feeds are somewhat different, mm-hmm. he'll be like, oh, this story is huge. I'm like, I haven't even like, seen anything about this story or you know or like he'll be more uh, i'll be more susceptible to like fake news from a certain direction he'll be more susceptible to it from another direction and you can just really see in our show planning calls in real time we have some overlap in our spaces but some things will be totally different stories that people are fixated on and obsessed with and it is it is really interesting to kind of like work that out in real time um Ryan, another thing I wanted to get from you is I think we were all very justified in our expectation of what the Biden presidency would be, because after all, the man has had how many years in what, like 50 years in Washington of a record that we could look at and be like, this is who Joe Biden is. This is who he was when he was senator. This is who he was during eight years of the Obama presidency. This is what he said about Republicans and how they're his friends and his buddies. And so this is what we expect. And he's he has broken in significant ways from how he has approached politics for the entire 50 years leading up to this point. What do you attribute that to? I think if if you go back to the question of what, you know, it are, are politicians the ones making the call or are they just vehicles for, uh, you know, an expression of a public will and whether that public will becomes like, you know, billionaires who get in their ear or an actual voting population is depends on what happens. Um, he's the best example maybe I've ever seen of, of politicians being just a vehicle, um, you know, for, for the ambitions of, you know, power and the Democrat at some point and Chuck Schumer has like, when you saw Chuck Schumer start to shift, I think that was like a signal that like, Oh, something, something weird is going on here. Like in 2018, mm-hmm. So he watched 2016, he watched Bernie raise all this money, but okay, that's just Bernie and he's talking crazy socialism. That's not something that uh, Schumer Schumer is necessarily going to be excited by, but he sees all that money. He's like, that's because Schumer is about raising money to then elect Democrats so that he can be the majority leader. Like that's his game. Then in 2018, you saw uh, small donors and then they become up these upper middle class donors who are giving to, who can give more than just twenty seven dollars to Bernie. They're giving twenty five bucks or fifty dollars to ten different Senate candidates 
and then a hundred bucks for Amy McGrath just to waste their money against uh, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> just just so that just so another consultant can have a boat. But like the the main the Democrat who ran against Susan Collins finished with like fifteen million dollars still in the bank. Like so, all of a sudden Schumer sees like hundreds of millions of dollars that is available to Democrats uh, by keeping tens of millions of people or millions of people fired up to give money to Democrats like that. So that becomes a brand mm-hmm. new model and it's easier for Schumer. Like, you know, because he doesn't have to give every one of those donors an intern, a kid's intern, a kid, an internship. You know, he doesn't have to like take a photo with each of them. He doesn't, he doesn't have to like write a letter to the sec to get, uh, you know, to like help, help out their company, like whatever, <laughs> all of the different things that, that the big donors are, are doing are like drawing time away from a politician. Uh, they'll do it. They'll do it happily if it means that they get their money and then they get power with the money. But if you if you they can just press a button um, and people th- give ten million dollars to an Iowa Senate candidate, they're like, okay, like what has Raphael Warnock raised this cycle? Like ninety million dollars, like some yeah. some like completely absurd amount of money coming in, way more than like these corporate Democrats were raising, and so. I so I and so Schumer, Schumer saw that and and uh, Democrats started seeing that like the era even in twenty you know in twenty uh, two thousand eight Obama has sixty Democrats for like a year stretch um, but if you look at some of those Democrats they're like all from like you know, a bunch of them from North Dakota uh, Nebraska uh, South Dakota uh, just Louisiana like just utterly unreliable votes on a lot of different issues whereas. You know, and you would have Republicans who you could win over, like Arlen Specter, who they even got to switch parties. Now, Joe Manchin, as far right wing as he is, is like significantly to the left of anybody on the Republican conference. And that's and that's new. And so so you don't so so that that part is fading. And so the combination of those those two things um, convinced, I think, Democratic elites that the way for them to raise a lot of money and stay in power was to keep these voters who were fired up in 2018 and flipped the house and who hate Trump um, to keep them fired up. Um, and that's what, like, so they keep trying to go back to the Trump thing. Um, whereas Schumer was like, no, like one thing you got to do is like student debt, legalized pot. Um, you know, those like, he was like, we got to actually give them things to keep them, keep them around. And he's, he hasn't succeeded on the pot thing, but, like that's it, his, it looks that, like that, I think that explains materially why you this would have happened. Hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. It looks like, uh, you know, Biden, when you look at the poll numbers among young people, he was facing electoral annihilation because the young just totally abandoned him because long, young people, like you said, are looking for material things to be delivered. We don't care about what you message or if you dance with some shitty celebrity on Ellen like you, we want you to actually deliver. And then. So I think that may fundamentally be what the uh, the thing was that drove him to actually do some student loan debt elimination. But, you know, he did it with Jill Biden in his ear saying, don't do it. And uh, Janet Yellen in his ear saying, don't do it. And it's interesting to me that he bucked probably the majority of his inner circle and his staffers to do it. And I've also seen a shift in his in his tone, certainly with the rallies and the speeches where. 
you know, and he's bringing all the nuance necessary and all the caveats and all the hedges about how, look, I'm not talking about a majority of Republicans. I'm talking about MAGA Republicans. And but, you know, these people are a real problem. And there was a clip I just covered recently where he basically did like a Mitch McConnell impression on stage and said, look at these guys. Well, you know, we we have this infrastructure bill and we're fixing the airports and the bridges and the roads and everything. And then you got these Republicans who vote against it. Then they go to their voters and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to build you a new bridge and it's going to be great. And, and <laughs> but this but this shift in tone that I've seen, do you see that as well? And do you think it's going to stick? Because this is the guy who was very big on like, I'm I'm the bipartisan guy. I'll make a deal with whoever. As soon as Trump's gone, the Republican fever is going to break. They're going to have an epiphany. They're going to work with me. And then he's in power. And of course, that didn't happen. Did this dude really at age 70, whatever the fuck he is, <laughs> wake up and say, oh, these guys are standing in the way. It feels like the same thing where um, uh, he he's responding to like, in, like he's responding to inputs from 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 people like he he does a th- he, you know like a like a, a dog that you give a treat to like you know he does a thing and then all of a sudden like the the cable folks and the twitter folks are like good for you uh dark brandon like you're that was a heroic thing that you just did and he's like wait so if i do these good things then people will say good things about me and my popularity will go up like let me do some more of those things like it i think it was I think for him, it was, it was that, it was that simple. Um, you know, some of it, uh, you know, if Manchin doesn't come back around, like that was such a, that was such a weird thing. Like it, we, we talk about the, uh, how the climate groups just kind of completely vanished. Like, I mean, it's, it seemed like it was just up to Manchin anyway. Like what are the, what are the climate groups going to do, um, at, at that point? Uh, so some of it, I think was kind of luck. In, in that sense, but the student loan thing wasn't, um, and give, you know, and, and the tone isn't like, that's something that he's deciding to do. But I think like they, they just, they tried it out. It, it worked. And they're just like, let's, let's keep doing this because, and it goes back to the thing about how the sides are so divided that you're, you're not trying to win over swing voters like you used to. You're just trying to keep your, keep your, the other side's voters home um, keep them upset and miserable um, and try to get your voters out to the polls like that. You're, you know, so if, if you can fire up your people, um, that's, that's your play because you're not worried about turning off people in the middle anymore. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Cause like, right. This is the guy who ran for president saying like, I'm the one who can work with segregationists. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Like, like, yeah, so like, <laughs> this isn't the first guy you'd expect to be taking this tone now. Yeah. yeah. Although Lyndon Johnson did do the sign the Civil Rights Act, right? It was Lyndon Johnson, who is a well-known racist, <laughs> happened to, like, give way more rights to black people, which is kind of crazy. Um, yeah. Ryan, the last thing I wanted to get from you is I've been trying to figure out what's going on with this permitting reform situation. So to give people the the backstory here, as part of his agreement to do the Inflation Reduction Act, Joe Manchin said, but I need a vote on this permitting mm-hmm. reform thing. Now, the thing he wants out of it is this pipeline in West Virginia that is near and dear to his heart and the heart of other you know business interests, corporate interests, donors, et cetera. But I've seen competing arguments here. Bernie's opposed to it. But I've seen other, um, you know, climate 
crisis-minded people, environmentalists, saying, no, no, we actually need this to help speed um, projects that would be good for like renewable energy projects. So what is, how should we understand this fight as it's unfolding? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, because like you said, so the, the environmentalist argument, or the, it's more of a climate argument, because I think if you're just, just simply environmentalist yeah. static on climate, uh, more power bad is going to rip, rip up different uh, wilderness areas. Um, it's going to create more, yeah, you know, more spills, more, more disasters, more fires. Um, but if you're, if you're a climate activist, it, it is an interesting question. Like the amount of uh, fossil fuels pumped through uh, the Mountain Valley p- pipeline, the one that he wants, or it's gonna, it'll be an extraordinary amount. Like it's going to be massive. Um, that, but but you'd argue, well, that goes into a global market. Uh, what we need to do is, like, how much is in the ground? I mean, how much is, like, how how what the what the what the potential to like burn is different than what is burned, and what is burned has to do with whether or not we've transitioned away from a fossil fuel economy or not. And the way to transition away is to boost clean energy, um, is, is to make sure that it can, it is competing and then out competing and driving, making it so the mountain Valley pipeline, um, is, is just no longer a profitable thing to operate for the company that it's just, they could just, that renewables are going to out, uh, out compete it. And in order for that to happen, the, this is this would be the argument from the climate people. You have to lay a whole ton of transmission down, you know, to get from the wind farm uh, o- over to the population center. Um, and these these transmission lines need lots of uh, you know lots of permits because you know this is dangerous stuff. You're running massive amounts of electricity for miles and miles, um, and you're, you're also you also see massive fights from uh, different communities against solar projects and and wind projects like nobody no no rich people want like these you know so like a solar paint like they, they're looking out at a mountain and they like to wake up and drink their coffee and look at the mountain they, they want that mountain definitely not to have solar panels on it um they don't want windmills um on on that mountain and so then they will like hire attorneys who will gum up the permitting process for decades so the argument would be that if you're going to build things fast enough to save the climate apocalypse, that's like you actually do need some permitting reform. Now, whether you can trust like Manchin and his allies to uh, to write the kind of permitting reform that would allow for that is another question. I, I so I'm, I'm not steeped enough in it to know the answer, but that's the that's the question, and, and it does seem like they're going to be able to ram it through. Um, because they'll just attach it. Now, I think Democrats could, uh, the progr- I think Progressive Caucus could probably play chicken with them, threat- threaten to shut the government down and block this. And I don't, I don't think Democratic leaders are going to shut the government down going into a, midterms. But Democratic leaders are certain that the, they can just roll the Progressive Caucus on this, is my guess. Well, we have... Um taken a lot of your time, which we're very grateful for, and gotten a lot from you in terms of the current political situation, the near term, the longer term, the past, the future, all of it. So Ryan, very excited to have you and Emily for counter counterpoints on the Breaking Points channel and to get to work with you um, further in the future going forward. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Is it counterpoint or counterpoints? 
I think points. Counter multiple. points. Multiple. Okay, so the Multiple S is there, points. yeah, because that makes it easier because yeah. then you have the like, breaking points, counterpoints. All right, cool. Where can everybody find you, there? dude, on Twitter? Where can everybody find you on Twitter? Just my my name, Ryan Grimm, on there on Twitter, and then my newsletter is Bad News, which comes out once a week or so. Um, and then also, uh, of course, over at The Intercept is where where we do our do our news. And on Bad News, do you share good news? I once in a while will uh, go off brand and share some, share some good news. I, I started that newsletter in like 2014 or 15, and um, pre and it's now a Substack, but it was pre Substack, and and for many 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 years it was just bad news. Um, occasionally, there's some. I good mean, news it to seems like there now. grim news was there. It was it right seems there. Like grim I just news couldn't was do there it for the taking, and you I just, just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> you should have done it, bro. I should have done myself it. To do it. I should have. Like I can relate. I don't like to lean into the like name related <laughs> stuff for me either. So fair enough. Yep. Fair enough. I respect the decision. <laughs> um, Ryan, great to see you. Thank you so much. All right, you too. See you guys. All right, that was Ryan Grimm. Um, I'm curious to see. You know. Is the show, I mean, I know they they hosted Rising a little bit. They would like fill in on Rising and whatnot. But I'm curious to see how the, dyna- is the dynamic is going to be like breaking points. Because I don't think it is. I mean, from what I understand about Emily, she's more of a libertarian than Sagar is. Yeah, Sagar's she definitely is. Sagar is centrist. Yeah. Um, I think they also, uh, they pick some different topics than what Sagar and I focus on. Like, I think they're more willing to... They do a little bit more cultural commentary. That's kind of, you know, something Emily focuses on and comfort zone for her. So, yeah. And they also we really encourage them to make it their own um, so that it has their vibe the way they want it to be. And they're leaning a little bit more into sort of a podcasty format, a little more um, casual. It's on Fridays. So I think that fits with the vibe. So, um, yeah, I mean, we made breaking points, obviously, coming out of rising to be very specific to me and Sagar and what we like to do and how we would like to do it. So we really have been pushing them to try to, you know, make it their own, do it however they want to do it and however is comfortable for them. So I'm excited uh, about it. Um, Corin said to me, if you continue expanding, you better give him a sports show next. <laughs> if we do a sports show, Corin, I promise it's you. Do you guys have plans <laughs> to expand more or no? Not really. We didn't. So we didn't really have this plan either, to be honest with you. We were um, planning to continue to expand the partnerships we've been doing. Um, You're one of those partners. Crystal Kyle and Friends is one of those partners. Obviously, like uh, Matt Stoller, Max Alvarez. We've got a whole crew of folks. And Ryan was one of those, too, who was um, doing exclusive content for our channel. And he and Emily approached us as like, hey, what do you think about this idea? And for us, we really, you know, we were really excited about it. Obviously, Ryan and Emily were some of the original panelists over at Rising. They helped to sort of build that show and the ethos of the show and the audience. There are people that Sagar and I are both very comfortable with. So, you know, we don't expect to like agree with all their takes, but we also know they're what they're going to do and that they're going to approach things with good faith and and be honest about what they think. I mean, that's really all that we ultimately ask. So, um, so yeah, it was a good fit. And our audience over there seems really excited about it. Um, the response has been very positive. And I think they like the idea 
they have a comfort level with Emily and Ryan because they've known them now for years at this point too. But they also just like the idea that we're able to build, that their support has enabled us to grow in this way. So it's a cool thing. Yeah, that that's great. I mean, that's awesome to hear. I, I'm much more of a coward when it comes to any sort of expansion. I've always been like, a, you, you know me and my little yeah. shell. And I do I do what I do and that's it, you know? So yeah. it's, it's uh, as somebody told you, uh, you're sort of, well, what was the phrase? You're creating like an unintentional empire or something like that. <laughs> Is that the phrase? An ac- accidental media mogul. Oh, accidental media mogul. That's what it was. That's pretty funny. Um, I mean, I think that's a bit of a stretch, but it's it's cool to, you know, you're in be in a position to add a full show like this. And, um, you know, I think it's I think people are going to love it. I think it's going to be really successful. I think it's going to be a good addition to the ecosystem. So. We're, we're definitely thrilled about it. And it also just like on a personal level means that I have to do less content. So. <laughs> 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 they can take some of the burden off of us. Yeah. Like that part too. Yeah. And, you know, the mission seems like it's somewhat similar to Breaking Point. So it kind of fits the mold a little bit, you know? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Same core ethos of people who have some agreements have some disagreements and are trying to engage in like intelligent, good faith debate, dialogue, conversation. That's the basic idea. I mean, I think, and I've, I've talked to Ryan about this. I don't think this, this is like talking out of school, but it relates back to what we were saying um, in our interview with him about how there's total lack of solidarity, lack of ability even to talk to people who have disagreements with you, lack of ability to engage in any sort of way. So that's always been at the core of what I believed in with rising and now breaking points was that like, if we can't, if, if I can't have a dialogue with Sagar in some sort of a respectful way, then the country really is in trouble. So to see that ethos um, embraced by Ryan and Emily and for their excitement about it and their, you know, expansion on the breaking points channel is to me a, a cool thing. Yeah. And th- I mean, the, um, it seemed it always struck me like the mission of breaking points, quite apart from any notion of solidarity, is more about like testing the limits of honest, good faith disagreement yeah, between people who right. genuinely disagree. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like there's some right. overlap, but it's also like, nah, you guys kind of disagree on a lot. And so yeah. it's like, what do you how 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 will it work and mesh together in like a very professional environment? with two people who genuinely disagree but you're not gonna nobody's gonna take shortcuts and accuse the other one of bad faith you know yeah and and that i think that's why that's why people like it because it is it is unique in that sense you know there isn't it's not one political project that you know everybody's pushing towards the same goal it's more like you know people with different political ideas and then having to present the news and then sort of navigate all the nuances of it from two very different perspectives yeah, and tension is interesting, right? Tension yeah, people do is love they love drama, they love they love debate, they love fighting. You know, yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm guilty. I click on all the debate the videos <laughs> where you and Sagar debate, or it's like know? Crystal and Sagar debate, whatever. Yeah, I mean, the tension makes it interesting, and it would be a lot easier if it was I was just co host with someone like you all the time, who you know I mostly agree on things with. But I think being uh, next to Sagar every day also makes me really have to dig into my own views, really have to be able to defend my own views on everything, um, do more research. And, you know, and he pushes and challenges me and changes my views on all kinds of things all the time. So I do think it makes 
me better, but more important, I think the audience has also responded that their minds have been changed on various issues. The one I probably get the biggest response on is how they think about unions, where because we have people who are on the right, who are in the audience, I've gotten a lot of responses that are like, you know, I always had just like a knee jerk anti-union reaction because that's what conservative media tells you. And I've really changed my mind on that, which to me, you know, how important that is to me, it, it really means a lot. So hopefully it's a beneficial format. I believe in it. And it's cool to see that Emily and Ryan do as well. All right. Very cool. Well, there you go. There's Ryan Grimm. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We appreciate it. We love you very much. Of course, you can support the show on Substack. We leave a link in the video description box. Um, of Actually, I have the link in the video description box of pretty much all of my YouTube videos, even from just the Kyle Klinsky show. So you could always support the show over there if you want. You can get the video of all the shows, and it drops a day earlier for people who are paying Substack members. So thank you so much to everybody who is. We love you guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Uh-huh.